Hey everyone, hi, hello, welcome to another episode of Allison Rosen is Your New Best Friend. I am delighted to introduce you to my guest today. This is someone that I have been wanting to have on the show for a very long time, and I'll get into all that, but she is a thanatologist, and you might be thinking, what is that? And she can explain it better than I can, but I will take a whack at it. It is someone who studies death, dying, grief, and mourning. Yes. Oh, I did it! it. <laughs> she also founded the School of American Thanatology, and lest I forget, it is on her coffee cup, which is across from me. So it's like I have my own cue card here. Uh, and uh, she does a host of other things. Please put your hands together for Cole and Perry. Hello. Thank you for having me. Hi. Very excited to be here. Very and excited to I meet you. I live here now. So I like, know. Like, just drive, you know, a couple neighborhoods over. It's wild. <laughs> I know. You were hanging out with Allie Ward earlier. And Today, you guys yes. have like a weekly work session where yes. you get together and, and work. Yes. And it really mm-hmm. helps because I think on Fridays, like I'm prone to be like, oh, it's Friday. Like, I can like, do whatever I want. Um, so I don't <laughs> do stuff. And then I put it off. Um, so when I, um, Allie comes over on Fridays and then I know like, okay, I have to do at least some stuff. And then she comes and we both get things done. See, that is so great. great. It works really well. (laughs) Another guest on the show, Caroline Moss, who hosts G Thanks Just Bought It, and then Nora McInerney, who hosts Terrible Thanks for Asking, who's coming on in March. Oh, cool. They take trips together to Las Vegas. And they like, you know, post on social media about it. They get a really nice room, which during the week in Vegas is not that expensive. Right. And then apparently they get a ton of work done. I am like envious of all these setups, really but I feel like I feel like I would just fuck off. I mean, I don't know, though, because you would think that. But OK, honestly, my opinion of Las Vegas is number one, it's one of my favorite cities, but for the like nature around the area. But I love staying on the strip. And usually I'm there for conferences mm-hmm. and I get a ton of work done when I am in Las Vegas. I don't know what it is, but that environment, I'm just like, OK, I need to like finish this. I need to reply to this email I've been putting off for three months. And I'm like in the Vegas energy and I'm like, I can get it done now. So I don't know. It might work. That is, you gotta, you gotta, try it. You gotta, you gotta be gotta a third it. on their trip because I don't think I've ever felt the Vegas energy lead to returning emails. But I love this That's, idea. See, my the hardest part of my, I guess, personality, or I guess my flaw is email. Mm. I cannot get it together. I. That is like the area in my work where like I'm always like, oh, my God, that important email I didn't respond to another week. And I don't know why my brain blocks this. That is the part of my job that I am the worst at. I hate the most and I'm not good at it. And I don't know how to eliminate it from what I have to do because I wish I could. Is it specifically email or is it like communication? No, it's just email. It's just email. The problem that I have, hang on one second. Hello, Tony Thaxton. <laughs> Hi. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm here for all your Thaxitology needs. Ooh. And what is Thaxitology? Thaxitology. Study of Thaxton. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, we've it seems already, pretty obvious. We've already gotten to the bottom. You should have, Allie Ward should have you on her show. It'd be a mini-sode. It'd be yeah. about, it, this is what it would be about. Oh, God. Here we go. Let me guess. <laughs> Take it away. <laughs> that I don't wear robes. 
Oh, uh, that, that I was, don't like bananas. That's right. No, you hate bananas. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And what's the other the other fun fact about you? Oh, wait. Now I'm blanking on what the oh other thing God, is you that, always it's say. It's the main thing, Tony. It's the main Oh, wait. No. If I were describing you to someone else, this is the main thing I would mention before the fact that you're a, a professional drummer. Is it the, the, uh, you did call me subtly handsome that one time. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, it's not, it's not that. I know. I know. I just I've had to that, that in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Man, wasn't I'm, that I'm, with on the Arden Marine episode? It was an episode that I yeah. was not there for, yeah. and so it was weird to listen back okay, to. Okay, Tony. <laughs> I'm gonna, and I call Antony. I'm going to walk you through how Tony's day starts. Okay. He oh, okay. rises yes. and shines. Yep. He thinks, oh, I hate bananas. He doesn't put on a robe. He goes straight, I mean straight into the shower. Takes a shower. I don't know how long that lasts. We're not that close. And then he gets out, and then immediately, like right after drying off, Puts on his shoes and wears Whoa. them for the rest of the day. <laughs> immediately Whoa. after drying off, <laughs> there are other there are other things put on. And like, yeah. sh- sh- okay. Shoes first after getting out. Like, oh, yeah. are, you, are you a shoes first? Is that where you start? Or <laughs> I might I might have gotten it a little bit wrong. <laughs> but I'm just saying you're in the ballpark. There's, there's no Tony's not kicking around his house barefoot eating a banana like the rest of us. He's just he has to wear shoes mm-hmm. right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're nodding like this is, is this my, my, my husband's like that. He <gasps> What's going on? wears like shoes um, and he has like shoes that are just like inside the house shoes only and then mm-hmm. he will like Mr. Roger like he Mr. Rogers he will change Ooh. his shoes to leave the house put on his outside the house shoes and then when he gets home takes off his out and switches to home shoes what are the home shoes are they like slippers um no he actually got instagram ad influenced and ended up all birds no okay i forget i don't know what they are they're like some kind of knit material they have like a rubber sole and laces Mm. like to me in a house shoe i don't want to have to deal with laces i just want to like have like a slipper on i actually like to wear just like big socks chunky comfy socks um but i yeah so he's he is a house shoe person I like it. Where yeah. is he with a robe or a banana? <laughs> um, he's big into bananas. He's a big banana guy, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, he has now we're 50-50. Shakes every day. Sorry. <laughs> I think he could live without. I like a robe. I like I have, a robe. Hey, I have no I problem have with many. people liking robes. I just yeah. don't need a robe. Just not for, as long as yeah. it's not hurting you. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So no, It's not like it's your forced like, uniform at work. So. <laughs> <laughs> Although you should, get, you should get robes that are like, have the little, like, your logo. That would be so cute. Oh, my God. You're also a marketing genius because anyone who's followed along on, like, the last few months of shows, and I offer a giant apology to them because... <sighs> It's not interesting, but I've just become like obsessed with my robe. Yes. The white I, robe. Yes. You wear even, it. Yes, I know. Yeah. Even my Owen, who you met earlier, I came out of the room like in the evening yesterday, mm-hmm. not wearing the robe. I thought I'd give it, you know, and he said, mommy, put on your robe. Oh, oh, oh. yeah. <laughs> so, so funny. Yeah. He's, you know, yeah, yeah. he's, uh, it's what he's, anyway. Yes. So the I'm robe, robe, the robe is, um. The new co-host of the podcast, and we yeah. need ro- we need Alice Rose's new best friend robes. Yeah. What would you do? Would you quit? I would. Yeah, I would. If you like, if you were like, "Hey, we're going to interview you," and I would wear one right now during this, and I would be. I love all of these. This is all brilliant. Okay, do it. So, emails. Yep. My thing. I just, I'm not good at it. My thing that I do is I. Uh, I'm really bad at like putting my phone in another room when I, I don't ever yeah. do that. Mm-hmm. So I check email and I wake up a lot in the night. 
so I'll look at my phone. I know it's bad, but I look at my phone. Yeah. I'll get, I'll you know, see an email come in when I'm like half awake and then I forget about it. Yeah, I think and that's then what I, I'm doing. It's like I see it and process it and then mm-hmm. I move on with my life, but I don't remember to like, right. to like communicate back. It's because... And then it becomes like a big thing when I'm like, oh my God, I forgot about it. What do I mm-hmm. say? <laughs> see, I think if it were the old days of email, <laughs> so not too old, but the old days of email where you're doing all your email sitting down at your desk or at your laptop yeah. or whatever, yeah. then it'd be different. But we're all reading yeah. emails on the go. Like this is why I think I wish you still were limited to the total number of hours a month you had access to the internet. I miss yes. that about AOL. Like, do you remember it was like, you know, you had like the 24 hour a month plan and then you, like the exciting part would be you'd log in and then if you were lucky, you would hear the voice that would say, you've, you've got, got mail. mail. And I'd be like, oh my God, I have an email. And now I'm like, oh. <laughs> so it's, what is it like to open your inbox and there's nothing? <laughs> I don't know what that's like. I miss it. Those were good days. Those were good days. I feel like I am so frequently in my inbox that I've seen nothing there. Ugh. I mean, except that, except for the like two hundred thousand emails that I still have that, that I are just like sitting in there. Yeah, they're just yeah. waiting. They're just waiting yeah. for their time. So, but but enough of digital communication. Yeah. Let's talk about death. Yes, the reason you're here, my fave. Um, okay, so actually, no. Let's talk about. I know of you via Ali Ward yeah. because at the beginning of the pandemic, I think I mentioned to her that I might want to have a grief counselor on or something mm-hmm. like yeah. just thinking sort of as a society, we're all dealing with loss and blah, blah, blah. And she's like, you need to have Cole and Perry on. She was on ologies. It's, it's like everyone's favorite episode. She's amazing. And so that's when I first knew about you. Okay. And then uh, I don't, yeah. I don't know if I reached out to you then or not. Um, talking about not being on top of your email, <laughs> but I know that I was aware of you then. Yeah. And then, Again, I thought I should have you on. And then um, with Allie Ward's dad dying, I said that you were, and then you were on the show again. And I was like, I need to listen to that episode, but I'm afraid to listen to that episode. Um, I don't know if Allie told you, my dad is like, he he's okay now, mm-hmm. but he's, he had a heart attack in August, was in the mm-hmm. hospital for a couple weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, he's major... Like to seeing your parent. Like, yeah. So yeah. he's like lucky to be alive now and we don't know how much time left there is, but but conceivably there could be years left. Yes. Like that's the thing that's so hard with a heart thing. Yes. Is that you just don't know. Right. Um but in but I do feel like he's fading. But any so anyway, um I think yeah, I was like, I'm not ready to listen to, uh, like, yeah. I want to have you on, but I'm like not, but then today I listened to the episode. Oh, you did? Such I a beautiful that. episode. I was going to ask if you listened, like, yes. able to. Yeah. I was. Such, I listened to both episodes that oh, you yeah. were on, mm-hmm. the encore yep. of the original episode, oh, and good. then yep. the the one, um, like, the mini-sode that turned into a full episode yep. after your <laughs> yes. dad had died. Um such so beautiful like I did have tears in my eyes but it wasn't I thought it was going to be like like it wasn't like it didn't like make you feel sad or super down no it actually was really good I mean it actually was was moving and uplifting it was not look sisterhood of the traveling pants I bawled through (laughs) it was no sisterhood of the traveling plants and I mean Mm -hmm. plants (laughs) sisterhood of the look thanabotany yeah yeah okay so um did a research (laughs) (laughs) okay uh well, thank you for listening, and I love that Allie connected us, because Allie is, like, she's kind of the reason I'm out here in Los Angeles really? now. And the whole, I met her because of the Ologies podcast. I was, like, one of her first interviews, mm-hmm. um, and just somehow our, like, friendships, 
we made a friendship out of that. And um, I've known her now like half a decade. And I live out here now. So I was like, as I told her the other day, I saw her earlier this week. And I was just like, um, I moved out here for you. <laughs> <laughs> like in a non-creepy way. But Yeah. I mean, <laughs> good thing that she had a warm reception to it. So Yeah. I mean, yeah. And I was like, and specifically, I want to live near you. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah. I didn't realize. Yeah. I didn't realize till I listened today how close you guys had become and yeah. how much you and your husband were there for her and Jarrett. Yeah. Um, Which wouldn't have been possible if we hadn't like you know physically been out here right and that's, that's very true for like grief and loss in general like it's really hard to try to be there or show up for people mm-hmm. when you are physically distanced from each right. other um being able to have proximity is so helpful yeah so i heard i think it was on ologies you were saying that initially you thought that la was just like a concrete barren yeah i wasteland. had i mean you know i i'm from cincinnati um i like I Kentucky is my home um and I lived there the last 10 years and Kentucky there's it's a different little bit of a different culture a little bit of a different vibe than the Ohio side of things Mm because Kentucky and Ohio touch um and I mean I don't know like just also being out here meeting people and I tell them where I'm from they have sort of the same kind of relationship or perception of that part of the country that I did from being out there thinking of LA because mm-hmm. it's so far away. Like a physically. cartoony. It's just, yeah, all you know is what you've like been told in the media or seen right. in movies or how it's represented in TV shows and stuff like that. Um, so it's been really wonderful to move out here and like realize just how much I love Los Angeles. It is so, there's so, it's so wild. There's so much nature. It's beautiful. It's in bloom all the time. Like it's really an incredible city. And I just like the other day I realized like, I don't want to leave. Like I'm, I don't want to leave. This is home now. It's just Los Angeles. Oh, that's so great. Yeah. Uh, How did, how did you avoid getting an accent? Um, well, you grew up in Cincinnati. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I do think I have a little bit of a one just because, um, well, my husband's from West Virginia and I went to college in West Virginia. And so the Appalachian accent is definitely something that immediate members of my family have more of, Mm -hmm. but I definitely have an awareness of it. And I think when I'm like speaking sort of like this, I naturally without even thinking kind of tone it down. Mm -hmm. But if I am very relaxed, like the end of the day, maybe I had a drink or two, my, you'll hear a little bit of that Appalachian twang Mm -hmm. appear. Um, but yeah, it's definitely something I'm hyper, I like I'm aware of, especially right. being out here in LA because it's not normal to hear the Appalachian accent. So, but I and, don't know. And also, all these years that I've been saying Appalachian, no, that's it's Appalachian. Not... Don't say don't don't say Appalachian. Is that like saying Oregon? Yeah, yeah. Oh, so basically, <laughs> Tony, did you know you're from Virginia? Did you know it's Appalachian? Oh, where in Virginia are you from? Uh, I lived in just outside of Richmond, Richmond for a while. Area. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So if you say Appalachian, that you're an asshole. No, it just indicates that you're not like from there. Okay. Like you're like you're not in the club. <laughs> so. I wanna, I love I love being. <laughs> but in it's a club. Appalachian. And I'm gonna say I'm gonna go there. And I'm gonna say Appalachian. Yeah, and they'll be like, okay, she's cool. She's one of us. Yeah, she's on that team. <laughs> okay, so that's that's my first move. Then mm-hmm. what's now? Once I'm on the team, then what do I do so that they don't like discover that I'm not one of them? Well, if you're in West Virginia, ask where can I get the best pepperoni rolls, okay. and then they'll be like, oh my gosh, they'll have lots of opinions about this, and then they'll know that you're truly part of it okay yes. and, and a, a pep what is a pepperoni roll so a pepperoni roll is 
like a traditional West Virginian food. And it was um, coal miners would take it down into the mines and eat it for like lunch. It was like a food that could sit out for days mm-hmm. <laughs> and you'd be able to eat it. Um, but it's like very much a local food. And sometimes the best pepperoni rolls you can find are like at the local gas stations and things like that. And they're just like delicious. And literally it's like pepperoni, a little bit of cheese in kind of like a white soft roll. Mm. And it's just really good. And so a lot of people grow up with that. It's They appear like at holiday functions and stuff. Like, you know, you'd bring green bean casserole to Thanksgiving or something. There'd be pepperoni rolls. Um, and that's actually something that when my husband went back home for like the first time after we moved here, he bought like a dozen pepperoni <laughs> rolls and just ate them for days. Right. So, yeah. It's one of those like cool local food things. Tony, <laughs> have you had a pepperoni roll? Do they wow. make it into Virginia? No, not that I'm at aware of. At least that of. part of Virginia, maybe. Yeah. And I'm... Allison, I'm from Michigan. I lived oh, in Virginia for a while. Oh, where are you from, Michigan? <laughs> a very, very small town called Edwardsburg. It's right on the Indiana state line. Not, oh. not the most exciting area. Oh, okay. But, yeah. um, I have some half-sisters that live in Kalamazoo, and then I spent a lot of time in South Bend, Indiana, and Oh, yeah. I li- yeah, that's right by where I, I lived. Know it. Yeah, I know yeah. It. yeah. South Bend yeah. was like 20 minutes from where yep. I grew up. Okay. Yep. I thought, okay, cool. So, oh, what mm. a small... I, but you didn't know Appalachian. Tis a small no. world. Small mm. world. And you also don't know... Pepperoni, pepperoni rolls. rolls. No. Um, speaking of food, I don't know if Allie told you what I was making for you guys this morning while she was at my house. Okay. No. I brought it. Oh, my gosh. Okay. <laughs> Tony, a drum roll or something, please. Number one, I churned fresh butter <gasps> for you. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> yes. Oh, thank you. Oh, that's Jeez. so beautiful. Okay. And I put it, like, in little flour molds and then... Does that have salt on it? I picked up a fresh loaf of challah bread from LA Home Farm so oh that my we can God. have like challah and butter. fresh butter and you can just like rip it off. So this is my gift. Thank you. Thank you guys. This is so unnecessary, but I hope everyone <laughs> takes note. Listen, just always bring food. Thank you. Always bring food. That's that my... That is... Yes. I love that. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right. I, oh, I mean... Sorry, I, I th- do I want you off. I no, threw you I off know, but of, it's exciting. <laughs> I'm questioning. Sorry, <laughs> I do want to ask because I heard on a podcast that you know what? I'm going to stop saying where I have heard of everything because it it's just <laughs> unnecessary. I'm just going to start that sentence over again. <laughs> I do want to ask because I learned that uh, you found out that you were Jewish by blood, and that is something your family had kept from you. No, it's not that they kept it. Oh. Just was like not. It was like lost from the living generations of family. And it wasn't something that I had discovered until after I'd been a practicing Jew Mm -hmm. and served on the board of a synagogue and had gone to Israel (laughs) on a birthright trip. How did you find out? Well, through genealogy. So I did um, like a DNA test um, eventually years after I had been like when I was in high school. um, Okay. So do you want this like little yes. like sort of story and like sure. I, you know identity? So growing up, um, my mom's side is Catholic, and I went to Catholic school for eight years, and then came the time to decide where to go to high school. And in Cincinnati, Cincinnati is very like German Catholic. So a lot of my mom's side of the family, everybody went to like an all boys Catholic high school or an all girls Catholic high school, and I had been like a religious questioner. Like I remember, I got. Um, put on the wall one time in grade school, which was like detention, Mm -hmm. because I had asked, why are we Catholic if Jesus was born a Jew and died a Jew? I was was like, make it make sense. And so I got in trouble. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I decided that I did not want to go to Catholic high school because I just was like, 
make it make sense to me. It was I was really hung up mm-hmm. on that. So um, I chose to go to public high school in Cincinnati. And for whatever reason, I became one of the Jewish kids. Um, and so that was really why, where I was like deeply exposed and then like part of people's families. And that's when I started observing Shabbat. And I started observing Shabbat on my own because I just thought the tradition was so beautiful. And it just really made sense to me. And I cannot explain it any other way. It does not make sense to me that like a 13 year old would just be like, I'm going to start lighting the candles and observe Shabbat. But it just like, <laughs> I it need was a like break I've... from the hectic week. Actually, 13 year olds <laughs> do need a break from the hectic week. Yeah. But it was just like, I found something that just made sense mm-hmm. to me. Um, and then I went on in college and one of my degrees is a uh, Judaic studies. So I learned to read and write biblical Hebrew um, and really deeply studied all of that stuff. And that actually really – a religious studies degree is great to have for anyone that works with death, dying, Mm -hmm. grief, and loss because a lot of what people believe about death, where do you go when you die or not, or how you should live your life, is informed by the religious tradition that you hold to or that you grew up around. So if you can become more educated about how religions work and all that stuff, you can kind of come to a deeper understanding of death, dying, grief, loss, and mourning rituals. Mm -hmm. So then I found uh, a sect of Judaism. It's called Reconstructionist Judaism, which is more um, the most in line with sort of like how I see things. Um, I served on the board of a Reconstructionist Reconstructionist synagogue for like several years. Then I went on a birthright trip when I was in my early 20s. And then I started to do all this DNA stuff to look into my history and um, Ashkenazi Jewish came back and my like immediate living family members were like, what? (laughs) Had no idea. Um, But I've since connected and found like my Jewish ancestry, where they originated. They're actually from Northeastern France, Mm. French Jews. And part of why they left to come to the United States was because at the time you Jews in France would be taxed. They would have to pay an extra tax just because they were Jewish. Um, and that was why a lot of them left. So that was – that's what I found. So it's then wild. when you found it, were you like – in your mind, is that why you were potentially drawn to Judaism or do you think that's just coincidence? No, I think – I don't know. So it's interesting. Like the older I get in my work with death, dying, grief, and loss, I mean – like, okay, so when I started in my career with death dying, I approached it being like, what is right? What is wrong? Mm-hmm. And then like, what do I believe? Like, I want to believe what is right. But it was very like, I was just seeking. When you say right, do you mean like, scientifically correct? Or do you yes, mean? Yes. Okay. Like, well, like I wanted everything like to real. be a black and white issue. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to know like what was like the side I was on. Everything had to be like sort of a side. And then, and this happens for a lot of people who work in my line of work. Mm -hmm. And then as time goes on, then you realize everything is literally a gray area and you're never going to find the true black and white, the true yes and no side of things. Um, But there's this idea in Judaism that like, um, that there's something in my soul that just naturally found it. Mm -hmm. And the older I get, the more of a comfort that feels to me. And it just makes sense to me because there really was no reason why at such a young age, it's not like I grew up in a Jewish household, Mm -hmm. you know, why would that have resonated with me so deeply to the point that I pursued it? I don't know. So, yeah. Right. And so, and, and what are your parents? I'm going to give you like three questions. Yeah. (laughs) What, what, what are your parents like? What did they think of this? And then also, do you have siblings? Um, Yes, I do have siblings. Um, None of my siblings are religious. I, think in any way like you know what I mean at all and I don't it's not that I necessarily think I'm religious 
but my Jewishness is central to my identity. But I would, I'm a little bit like, I don't know, it doesn't necessarily make you religious. And, mm-hmm. and, and from a Jewish perspective, that's a little bit different than like in Catholicism, for right. example. It's like, you're, are you a religious Catholic or not? Mm-hmm. Um, but my parents um, accept and embrace it. And actually, because I wasn't like born into a practicing Jewish family, um, <laughs> I get a little emotional here, but two Christmases ago, um, Christmases ago, Okay. Yeah. No, I, saw I it asked too. <laughs> my, I love Christmas. Um, I asked my mom and dad to give me, um, a Hebrew name. Oh, um, which is important to me. So in Judaism, um, when you have a child, they'll, they'll usually have like an English name and then you'll give them like a Hebrew name, mm-hmm. um, like at birth, like, or right after. Um, so obviously I never had that. Um, but it was important to me. And so I asked my parents to do so. And, um, they really thought about it. They like, and then on Christmas, which I love that they gave it to me on Christmas. Yeah, I know that's perfect. Right? <laughs> it's, a, it's perfect for me and my background. Yeah. Um, so they like took the time to like write out and explain. And my they like reached out to some of their Jewish friends to be like, what do you recommend for our daughter? Like, what do you think? And so that just is so meaningful to me. So I like, that's that's where that's they're really at with sweet. it. Yeah, yeah. It was really meaningful to me. So, and I kind of like it's kind of cool to be able to get that as an adult. Yeah, like I'm I'm their adult child, right? Requesting this, and, and they, they were put like, in the work. Yes, that's so nice. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, where are you in the birth order? Um, I have two older half sisters, um, and then I have a younger, like whole sister, mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess you call it. So, yes. So, and then my oldest half sister, um, she died in 2019. Um, so that's, you know, sad. Yeah, <laughs> really sad. Yeah. But you were, I know you've experienced loss, but you felt drawn to this work before you had experienced loss? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say so. Um, and I don't really know why. Um, like, I don't think there is like a why for it. But it wasn't until I was actively working in the field <clears throat> that I started to have people from like my childhood be like, hey, um, I just had a memory about you or something. And they would tell me stuff from when I was a little kid that I had no memory of. Mm-hmm. So, for example, my um, one of my like grade school best friends, her mom sent me like a card one time and she was telling me how they remember as a family when the family dog died that I was over there and I was like facilitating things. And I was just like, let's talk about it. Like what's going on. And I remember, um, that, you know, did you ever have like a play microphone when you were a kid or something like a play karaoke machine? Of course. Well, (laughs) me and my, like at the time childhood best friend, we like had the microphone and we were like interviewing the, the recently dead dog about like, where are you right now? Have you seen God yet? And it was just like this, um, really nice little childhood memory and then I would facilitate a funeral and all this and that, who knows where I got that because mm-hmm. I didn't grow I didn't have like a grandparent die until I was like 16 years old mm-hmm. so um, I don't know there was just something in there I guess that was comfortable with it right out the gate who knows why um, but yeah just, At what age do you remember taking an interest in it um, it really well I guess college somewhere in there I remember in high school I took one of these career tests um every like junior had to take mm-hmm. it and, you, and then it gives you back like your top three occupations and I remember I got funeral director oh wow and I was so mad <laughs> I was like how 
dare they? Because I wanted it to be like fashion designer or mm-hmm. something like fun. Um, and I remember I threw it, like I think I threw it away. I was just like, I reject this. Now looking back, I'm like, okay, there was probably something mm-hmm. actually to that. Um, I just didn't like the idea of my perception at the time of like being a funeral director would mean that I have to be like quiet mm-hmm. and reserved and wear only black clothes and like, you know, be somber. And I just have never, I'm not, I mean, I don't, I do that. I don't think right, so. No. Yeah, I didn't at the time either. Um, so anyway, college came along, and I was pursuing <clears throat> um, uh, my other degrees in journalism. Mm-hmm. Where did you go? Um, I went to Marshall University in Huntington, West Virginia, and then the University of Cincinnati mm-hmm. in Cincinnati, Ohio. So um, did journalism. And in college, I was kind of like all over the place with what I wrote about. I remember one of my like big projects was like, yeah, did you like an investigative journalism piece? And I chose telephone poles to write about. I was like going to get riveting. I was going to get. Listen, listen. I was going to get to the bottom. You mean like like utility poles? Right. Okay. I I don't census. (laughs) Yeah, and so I don't understand at like twenty years old why I was like. I'm coming for you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, that's what I think. Like, my classmates were doing way more interesting things. Well, anyway, I ended up learning about, like, this stuff called, they they use these things at the base of the poles. It looks like black stuff sometimes. It's like a creosote, and they use other things. And actually leaches into the ground Mm. around there, and it's, like, not healthy. Um, So, anyway, I started to, like, call these, like, utility companies to see if I could interview somebody. And then they... They started hanging up on me. Oh, because you're Aaron Brockoviching them. I was. And so <laughs> I ended up not being able to, like, get actual sources because the local utility companies had, like, blocked yeah. my stuff. So that was wow. that was a taste of, like, oh, journalism. Yeah. It was like this. Um, but – and then in, let's see what else I do in college. I did roller derby in, throughout college. So wait, college. though. Did you did – you, did you <laughs> doggedly pursue the black stuff on the bottom of the pole thing or did you let it go? Well, no I mean, judgment if you let it go. Well, I let it go. Okay. I let it go because the, the, the semester was ending. And I just needed to turn the paper in. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, you know what? This is, I don't think I want to get into an argument with like big oil or whatever. No. I'm like, that's, yeah. gonna, that's where it's going to end up. So, right. Yeah. I just oh, that's decided fascinating. to leave that You behind. also did roller derby. Yep. Did roller derby for several years. Um, and I actually didn't like grad, like when I graduated from college, I didn't walk at college. I didn't do the, the big mm-hmm. ceremony. And then instead, my roller derby league had a graduation ceremony. So I skated in my little room. Oh, <laughs> and that's it was so the nice. cutest. <laughs> that's really yep. cute. Yeah. And at the time, my husband was a ref for our league. Which was just you guys were already together? Yeah. <clears throat> I met him like the second week of college. I was 18 years old. Oh, wow. So we will be together 20 years this year. Wow. Married 17, 16. It'll be something like that. 16, 17 years. I don't know. So, yeah. And so from the time, you, <clears throat> have you been together ever since from the time you met? Like you never broke up? No. Look at that. And I was not that weird? That's really sweet. Because I never thought of myself as that. I envisioned myself being this. I really wanted to sample the field yeah like I really like that was what I saw for myself mm-hmm. I saw for myself settling down maybe when I was like 40 and you know the second week of college or something I met Victor my now husband and I remember when I met him this little voice was like you're gonna marry this guy I will never forget it and then I did and I was you know it was a bummer because I was like man, <laughs> I'm not gonna get to like yeah taste experience. the wares yeah <laughs> yeah so um 
But yeah, so in college, I mean, there was, wasn't anything necessarily death specific, I guess. I mean, I took some classes that were on the subject matter. What? Um, what? Uh, like just death and dying classes. And then a lot of the religious studies classes talk about death because of how it's referenced in biblical texts. And like, I don't I feel like there were no death and dying classes offered at my college. Where did you go? Pomona College. Okay. It's one of the Claremonts. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting. Well, death like and- what what um, discipline were they in? Um, a lot of times death and dying classes are housed either under psychology departments or religious studies oh, departments. Oh, you know what? They're pro- under in psychology, there probably was some yeah. some a class like that. Yep. Yeah. Sometimes they are cataloged under like philosophy as okay. well. I bet there was some stuff. I'm just not know, remembering. Yeah. Death kind of affects everything. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. Um and then after college, that was when like immediately, like I did like an internship at a crematory, a funeral home, a cemetery. Mm. Just like by choice, mm-hmm. just decided to just reach out and do this because um, I had a job right out of college that was not um, death related. What was it? Um, I worked for an architecture and engineering firm in um, their prisons and barracks division. So I actually had for a time security clearance onto some local military bases. Mm-hmm. And I was involved with like the trying to get the government contracts so that we could build barracks. And then that was a job that I literally on a Friday was like, bye. And I <laughs> walked out. And that was when I started working for myself. Mm-hmm. And that was in 2007. And here I am today. What was it about that job that didn't <clears throat> appeal to you? And you should know something about me that hasn't come up recently. But a long time ago, I announced architects are assholes. They're megalomaniacs. Everyone knows this. And everyone was like, no, they push. Actually, not everyone pushed back. Because this is one of my hot takes. Yeah. My original hot takes that I've known for. I'm not known for hot takes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there were. I remember on Twitter, there are people who were like, I work with architects or I am an architect and you're absolutely right. But anyway, was it working with architects that made you have to leave? Yes. <gasps> um, yeah. So not all of them. Like I'm still in oh, touch and friends with, um, at least Keaton was great. Like several that I worked with, but at the time, <laughs> so this was kind of, I don't know if this is like oversharing, but, um, it probably is, but I will talk about There's it. There's no such thing. Um, are we okay? I would like to talk about, um, infertility. I did IVF. Okay. So yeah. let's, let's, let's talk about this. Yeah. I've um, talked about it a lot. So imagine this, I get married at 22 years old, <laughs> I'd been already been with my husband for four years, um, and I got married on New Year's Eve, and then like, I um I remember I stopped taking the birth control pill because I hated it. It just never felt yes. good, and I was like, I'm married, so if I get pregnant, no one can say I'm sinning. Mm-hmm. And I just was like, you know, that's why I, that was my decision making mm-hmm. process. Well, 21 days later, I was 20 pounds heavier, and I had lost a ton of my hair. It had just fallen out. And turns out the birth control was treating a hormonal disorder that I had that we didn't realize because oh, I had wow. been put on it basically as soon as you like hit yeah. Um <clears throat> So when I went off of the pill, my body just like exploded. It was the worst year of our – like it was one of the worst years because it was like we just got married and everyone was like, oh, it's going to be so great. Yeah. And I'm like balding and expanding rapidly. It was just so uncomfortable. So anyway, found out. I was, like, infertile. Mm -hmm. Like, things were just not going to work. And it's so interesting because we hadn't yet gotten to a point where we were like, do we want to have kids? When do we want to have them? Like, that Mm -hmm. was never even discussed yet. So it's not like 
for me, I wasn't navigating the loss of like, oh man, we were going to try to have a family right away. Like we hadn't even talked about it. So it's like I we lost this thing that we hadn't even yet like mm-hmm. claimed for ourselves, right. if that makes sense. Yeah. So anyway, <clears throat> I ended up having to have this surgery on my ovaries that they no longer do. Did you have endometriomas? No. Okay. I don't have that. Although my sisters, I think one of my sisters does. Um, I had this thing done called ovarian drilling, mm. which is what it sounds like. It, they don't do it anymore. Um, so that definitely, like, I think, <laughs> made sure made we're sure going to be infertile. Yeah. Um, so, and I was like 22 going through this. So that happened. And what is ovarian <clears throat> drilling supposed to do? Well, so um, they like laser. Like, they basically burn holes all over your ovaries. And what that does is is it affects the way that your ovaries produce hormones. Mm -hmm. Um, That's what I was told. Like, Mm -hmm. also, if I was having that surgery today, I would have approached it totally and asked better. I mean, I was 22 years old, just got married. I mean, I didn't know. I was just like, okay, sure, I'll have it. Right. So anyway, um, so this was happening. And then at work, where I was like this, like, architecture company – and because I got married, my husband and I got married pretty quickly because we had no money. Mm-hmm. So we got engaged in October, and then we just got married in my parents' living room on New Year's Eve. And we had my dad marry us. Aww. I mean, because it was cheap. It was like $35 to get my dad licensed to marry us. And so I was like, great, we'll do that. Um, well, the rumor started at work that the only reason I was getting married was because I was pregnant. Oh. And... <clears throat> At the time that this started spreading around the office, I was actively finding out that I was infertile. I had gained all this weight. So people right. were like, she's pregnant. Yeah. And then mm. some time passed and there was obviously no baby. And then people were like, she got an abortion. And that started, <laughs> sorry, spreading, laugh, that oh started spreading in the office. And I did not have the skills to be able to cope with that. I reached out to my boss. I told him what was going on. And he was like suck it up you're young you're trying to make it like you're just gonna have to let them talk but it was really wrecking me like living in like having that environment so it all boiled came to a head and then I remember I called my husband and I was just like I can't do this anymore because I got in the elevator and this architect guy was like so when's the baby due Mm -hmm. knowing that there was no baby and I was just like ah so I walked out I just literally walked out. It was like 3.15, and I was like, bye. I don't regret it. Yeah, no. Sounds like the right move. Yeah. So that's my architecture story. <laughs> now I know. <laughs> um, so I uh, found out I have I have endometriosis, and endometriosis, okay. endometriomas are the name of the cysts that yeah. like they're filled with blood, and it's a fun thing. Yeah. But anyway, I have those on my ovaries. Um, and at the time, the surgery they recommend is to – go in and and remove them and now apparently they wouldn't they don't, now they yeah. just leave them but i didn't know at the t- well, see the thing with endometriosis is they can't diagnose it 100% until they go in until they're in yeah so what they saw were there were like mass there was some kind of mass situation going on and my ca125 which is a cancer yep. marker was yep. elevated so there was this we have to go in to make sure it's not can- like an oncologist did the surgery, a gynecological oncologist. We have to make sure it's not cancer. So yeah. scary. Yeah, it's it w- so scary when like this system of yours is just like in question. <laughs> yes, totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I signed a. You know, I might wake up from the surgery with no uterus. Um, and the funny thing is that when I did wake up from surgery, I remember they were trying to tell me like, good news. It was just endometriosis. We, you know, not cancer. And I like, that was the first time I'd ever had general anesthesia. And I just remember Mm -hmm. thinking like, 
I know that at one point I cared, but right now I yeah. do. It was like, in my mind, it was like I had received an email and I'll go read it later. <laughs> like, yeah, I was yeah. so out of it. Um, but anyway, I found out then when we ended up, you know, going to the fertility, when I, I thought that I'd spent my whole life trying not to get pregnant, mm-hmm. thinking, mm-hmm. I mean, I like really bought in to all the sex education. So I was just like, if there's even like a uh, penis near you that yep. doesn't have a condom on it, you can get pregnant from like the pre-ejaculate and da da da. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I had like taken the morning after pill mm-hmm. just almost prophylactically when I didn't need to, you know, yep. I was just yep. like, I just want to be extra safe. Yep. Um, so I was so sure that I would get pregnant quickly. In fact, people had recommended freezing my eggs like in a sort of like all, like before we knew what was going on with my body, but just like, you know, a lot of women your age are yeah. are doing it. Just and I was just like, save, it's, save them while they're good. Right? Yeah, it's $10,000. <laughs> it sounds mm-hmm. invasive. Uh, I'm not I don't want to worry about that. So I just like put my head in the sand. And then I was like, incredibly infertile. Yeah. Um, and it turns out that that surgery had removed like a ton of my eggs. Oh, wild. Yeah, because they're they're removing part of your ovary. Oh, so they okay. take eggs with it. Yeah. Um, and they had not told me that at the time. Yeah, I was going to say, but was that – like it w- probably wasn't explained to you in those explicit terms. They not at like, all. Tissue was removed from yeah. whatever, which – but that doesn't say the tissue attached to all these eggs yeah. was removed. Yeah. No, not at all. But, you know, and then I play it back and I think, well, I wonder if at the time they would have been like – it's more important that we make sure you don't have cancer. I don't know. Yeah. You know, it's like there was this like feeling of urgency at the time. Yeah. But so anyway, um, so I share the infertile situation. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a wild experience. Yeah. And it's, another, oh no, go ahead. Yeah, it's just it's just a, it's a wild experience. It's also really common, mm-hmm. and everyone has a different like entry point into it, a different exit point, yeah. and it's so interesting. Usually, like in the medical world the way that information is told to you about fertility is can be very different depending on what part of the country you're in and like different like regulations how do you, how do you mean? and stuff well it's like okay so um one of the reasons I was really excited to move out to Los Angeles, for example, is because there's more healthcare options mm-hmm. than um, like where I moved from. A lot of the hospitals are like um, Catholic-based hospitals, so they have. Um, regulations rules. Yeah. and rules on certain medical procedures which which affects the options that are presented um to people um especially with like infertility related stuff um specifically because i for example i had a dnc at one point but it wasn't because which is like an abortion right, right. but it wasn't it wasn't that but i would not have been able to have that at certain periods of time depending on where laws were yeah. in the area that i was um and it is not getting better in certain areas no no so yeah yeah um what i was going to say was another thing we have in common is uh i know so i take questions from listeners and yeah. we'll get to them later but mm-hmm. i have to bump this one up to the top you have a fear of cicadas flying into your vagina yes because I have a fear of insects in my orifices like, too. I know that like the physics of that don't yeah. make sense. My brain does like rejects it. Mm-hmm. My brain sees sees it happening. Yeah, no, like, <laughs> like, I just, we have openings. Yeah. They're vulnerable, and I don't want an insect to breach it. And that's really like I I've, I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out like why. But you guys don't you guys don't get cicadas out here. No, it's just, that's just also I'm, I was so glad yeah. to move out here. I was like, there's gonna be no cicadas. How how big are cicadas? They're like 
Oh, they're like I mean they're substantial. Tampon when you, size. When you hold, yeah, when you hold them, they have a weight to them. Okay. Like it's not like a light lightweight bug. Like it's a yeah. bug that could like you know car- carry damage. loads of right. stuff and labor. Mm-hmm. It's like a laboring type of insect. Okay. Um. So yeah, they're they're pretty in- intense and their noises can be really scary. Mm-hmm. And then like the thing is. A cicada, like if it got up under your skirt or something, it would scream, first of all, which is also traumatizing to have an insect like up in your dress or something. Yeah, screaming. Yes. So have you have you ever had have you had a close call or anything? Yes. Oh, God. Okay. So I was I was 21 years old and we had one of our big cicada years in Cincinnati and I was going to the gynecologist. And Sorry. this was in Montgomery, Ohio, which is like a northeastern part of Cincinnati. And that area has a really huge concentration of cicadas that come up out of the ground, I think the 17-year cycle. And literally, it was centered around where this medical office was. It was like one of the worst spots in Cincinnati. And I was 21 years old. And so, I, I mean, it was so bad. Like, pulling into the parking lot, I had dozens of these cicadas on my windshield they were like crawling all up the car i mean i really la people don't know no. about this experience. <laughs> it is it is crazy but it was normal to me because it Pepperoni happened rolls, cicadas. Yeah. so i am i remember sitting in the parking lot and i had this cute little at the time this was like 2003-4 mini backpack this like boho oh my god i love mini backpacks <laughs> um, they're back like the boho kind of style where you were like lace skirts that mm-hmm. were like low rise but like lace skirts yeah. i had one of those on and i was like i got i gotta go into this gynecology office so i remember i just had to grab my bag and i opened the car door and i forced myself out and they so that's they were, what they sound they like were oh it's it's oh it's like it's an awful sound okay. deeply. Mm. So I started running and these bugs got, were on me and they, this had been so bad that there were staff like in the little entry to the um, gynecology mm-hmm. office that opened the door for you. They pulled me in. Oh my God. And they started beating the bugs off of me. <laughs> this is, this is like <laughs> awful. I mean, it was, it was, it was, and I was crying. Like I just, my yeah. body, like you just react and you're just like, Bitch, we don't know what to do. Cry. <laughs> like, that was just what I did. Yeah. So I was just, like, crying. And then I had to go in and have, like, a pap smear. Mm. I was so, like, my Clenched. body was like, what? Yeah, right. <laughs> that and the hatches. It was very painful. That uh, pap smear was, that was oh a rough Oh, my God. One. I'm yeah. surprised everyone mm-hmm. didn't come in clenched. It was, I mean, I think they did. It was a very stressful period of time. Not a good location for a gynecological no. office. <laughs> they should have thought um, about that. And, I mean, that's not what Cincinnati is like all the time. But, you know, every we go 13 year, we have a 17 year cicada cycle that's really bad. So, Tony, it was rough. what's your relationship with these bugs? Virginia has, um, Michigan has some in some parts, but I don't yeah, think I don't, you guys, you guys don't get that many. You don't no, get many I don't as, think I ever experienced it. Yeah, it's Mm-mm. not, it's not good. Um, Allie was super into the cicadas and she actually she, ended up. Her relationship with bugs is suspect. I mean, someone, someone's got to. Oh, like, she's yes. a bug. Girl likes Anna? bugs and stuff? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so anyway, Allie was, uh, she came to my house in Kentucky in May um, this last year and she, or no, the year before that, and we got to see the cicadas together. And I did that just because she was my friend. I didn't did, like it, but did I did you, it for her. I was going to say, like, did you see them <laughs> through new eyes or anything? I mean, I saw them through the eyes of like my friend would like this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and then at that moment, I was like, okay, she's really my friend. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. Mm-hmm. I, um, yeah, she's constantly posting, like, look at, I mean, 
a praying mantis, I feel like, is almost like a ladybug where yeah. you, or a butterfly where we're just like specially compartmentalized. Yeah. But yeah. she'll just have like a big old spider on her hand or yeah i think really bugs on her body cicadas upset me um millipedes upset me like just looking at them Mm -hmm. but there's some bugs i'm fine with like i don't like flies they don't bother me what about a mosquito um oh you guys really don't have mosquitoes out here it's so awesome it is awesome oh but we do i but i don't think i got one i like okay no it's like i don't have that problem either i like just my i I haven't been i don't have any right now but um, it was, a, but it only happened in like the last few years. Yes, like they literally didn't some, used to be here. I, I had heard that. Yes. Yeah, Allie, I'm sure could uh, do a whole episode. Give on the, it. Like, There's info. some mm-hmm. mosquito. I forget the name of it. That's not supposed to be here. Yeah. And I don't know how it got here. Yeah, um, because like 20 years ago there were like literally none, but now they're like starting to grow every year. But just recent, so it's kind of interesting. But it's really nice. You guys have less scary bugs for me, so it's good. <laughs> how do you feel about termites? Well, I that's why all the houses in LA have the um the tenting right mm-hmm. with the we stripes have to do that, yeah. because of the the termites are mm-hmm. they're just a different ball game out here, I guess. Yeah. So, ants? Um I mean, I'm cool with ants. Really? They, yeah, they don't I mean, they don't like upset me like they a cicada does. Yeah. I don't worry about them getting in my vagina. I do. So, I think that's how I classify bugs, fear of getting in my vagina or not. <laughs> if it's creepy crawly and uninvited, I'm worried it's going in my vagina and also my butt. Yeah. How do you feel about mice? Mice? <laughs> I mean, I haven't had a lot of mice experience to like to be honest. I think they're cute. Okay, what about if there's like m- if you have a mouse problem in your apartment or house? Is this the rest of the episode? Yeah, I, I've never lived. I've never had that, so I don't. Okay. I don't know. I feel like that's something you have to experience, and then it changes your relationship to it. Yes, so, I think so. Yeah. Um, just real fast because the listeners have heard it. When I was in New York, we did have a mouse problem, mm-hmm. and I couldn't figure out why I was afraid, why it bothered me so much because mm-hmm. I could not, I could not have peace of mind for all the months that it continued. I mean, we tried to handle it ourselves. Like we bought those things that are supposed to emit a high pitch, oh, probably yeah. cicada-like noise that they yeah. do. My friend had told me those don't do anything. Yeah, and I was like, I got to try it anyway. Um, finally, we called an exterminator, and he like, you know, put steel wool in all the holes and then the problem was over and I was like oh we should have done this immediately uh whatever but anyway I was trying to figure out like I they're little mammals people keep them as pets I'm not afraid of them in a pet store why is it why is it like eating away at my peace of mind in my apartment and I decided probably because I'm afraid they're going to climb up my butt yeah it's the only thing that makes sense yeah yeah afraid of unwelcome entrances right (laughs) um Okay, let's get into some of the thanatology stuff, though. Sure. So, okay, so you uh, started interning at a crematorium at, mm-hmm. uh, did you say funeral home? A funeral home, and then um, I did, like, a little rotation with a cemetery. Um, yes. Did you, all, at that point, were you like, I am drawn to this, I want to find out? Like, what, what was going through your mind when you opted to do those internships? I just remember being like, I should be more educated about this, like, how it actually like how does all this stuff happen mm. um but and why, I, but what what do you think was behind that i don't know honestly like i look back at it and i'm like what were you doing like in your <laughs> life like that i was just as a like a 20 year old or a 19 year old um i don't know it just drew me because i have never been um like i'm not like a horror person mm-hmm. i'm not i don't like thing i don't like to be scared I don't like to choose Same. things to scare me. I yeah. don't like to be scared. Okay. Um, and I don't like to be upset. <laughs> I don't like to be sad. Um, but I guess it was more just like a general, like a very real genuine interest in just like 
death. I was interested mm-hmm. in the business of death in the United States in particular. And like, then I became really interested. Now my work, I am predominantly interested in and focused on grief. Mm-hmm. Um, but in order to get to the grief, I really needed to have a really solid understanding of the dying and the death. And so that's kind of, I think, like the thematic structure of how my career has progressed. Mm-hmm. So I started with death, like what's a dead body like, all this stuff. And then I even did, I did a yoga teacher training that was like six months and we had a cadaver lab as part of our training. Oh, wow. It's part of a yoga teacher training. Yeah, it was a good one. Um, and the reason we did that was because if you're having people come into your classroom and you're asking them to move their bodies in ways, you need to be able to understand what you're asking them to do to their organs. Like what type where the pressure is going. So it was like, like an anatomy. Yeah. Lesson. Like so we were with a whole we had a it was a twelve hour, twelve hours total with a cadaver, um seeing the body and mm-hmm. like seeing just seeing it up close. And um, you know, the the purpose of yoga is to become more comfortable with your own death. Which I so this is why you practice I that. learned six hours ago listening to you yeah. on uh what is the name of that podcast? The art is green, Shelby. Oh, um, the the grief podcast. Yes, 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 yes. yes. Yeah, that, oh, that's right. I forgot it. I'm yeah, I'm forgetting the name of it. Carrying, um, carrying on, or maybe. Anyway, I can't think of it now that you're talking. We'll about figure it, it out. <laughs> yeah. but, you know what? If they, if mm-hmm. they uh, if they Google Cole and Perry, it'll uh, be one of the in, ones that pops yeah, up. Yeah, in that podcast app, it'll be one of the ones that pops up. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and here I thought that like, okay, yoga. I'm going to get away from the death stuff. So, right. I'm, you know, um, but I was really just getting more into it. <laughs> Turns yeah. out life is funny like that. Um, but yeah, so I did that and then I started to volunteer at a hospice um, and I led death cafes. And then, What's a death cafe? So a death cafe is a nonprofit organization that has a template that you can pick up and run within your own local community. It's a death cafe is like an unstructured time where people can come and just you're just facilitating an open space to like chit chat about death, dying, grief and loss. Mm -hmm. Um, And then usually you have like snacks afterwards. A lot of times libraries host them. Um, So is it kind of like a support group, but less structured? Yeah. And you have people that come that are actively grieving and then you have people that come that are like just really interested. Like they're 18 years old and they're like, I might want to be a funeral director. I'll go to a death cafe. So I would facilitate those. And then um, I was also working um, as a a death companion in my local community. Um, Which means what? So have you heard of death midwives? I've heard of death companions, death doulas, doulas, death companion. Um, Then there's also terms that are specific to... Uh, cultural and ethnic groups Mm -hmm. but it's the same function it's like you have a community member they're not a doctor they're not a funeral director they're not an attorney they just know like what to do Mm -hmm. when it comes to death and dying um so those kind of roles exist everywhere and have forever but i was doing that kind of like from a uh Mm non-religious secular approach had you is there training for that or is it something you just kind of intuited um there is but i will say that um originally with the role of like being a death companion or um, well, like in, in Judaism, we have something called the Chavra Kedisha, which is like when a Jewish person dies and they're like observant, we have a group of Jews that are trained specifically on the end of life rituals, like that know what to do when it mm-hmm. comes to death and dying. And these people are not funeral directors. They're not doctors. They're not like they're there to just uphold the rituals belonging to the community. So um, typically that function has been passed down person to person, Mm -hmm. like within a family group. Or like if you're Christian and your church has had a bereavement committee, like those people actually hold 
like the what do we do when it comes to death and dying mm-hmm. traditions. Um, in recent years in the United States, um, the death doula movement is following what Americans do. We like figure out how to make money mm-hmm. <laughs> off of it basically. Um, and then we start to talk about how do we regulate it and how do we like put laws on top of it. So that's actively happening right now as this sort of like new profession grows. Mm-hmm. Now there's so many more options to like get training and education from someone that you pay money to, but you is maybe not part of your actual hometown community or mm-hmm. your religious group or whatever it might be. Um, so I was just doing that. It just came very natural to me. Um, and part of why I think that that happened was because I had had the experience in a crematory, in a funeral home, um, in a cemetery. And uh, also like simultaneously. So when I quit that job, I was like, well, I guess I work for myself full time now. And so I had a journalism degree. So I knew how to write. I knew how to design. I had all the design software. Um, And so I started a consulting firm, um, basically business consulting, but with a strong marketing bent. Mm -hmm. And the the show robes. (laughs) (laughs) And with like, literally, I I cannot tell you this, how this happened, but I just started getting clients that were in or around death, dying, grief and loss. so I gained experience through understanding their businesses and like their challenges. I continued to work on my own credentials. So I became um, a certified crematory operator. I've cremated both humans and animals, but I have never been full-time employed, like at a funeral home. I'm also not a licensed funeral director um, or embalmer. I have been in more funeral homes than I can count because also for like half a decade I was teaching faculty for one of the largest uh, death care associations, um, I guess globally. And so I would travel the United States with my husband and we would give these, like we would certify people to become certified crematory operators with a whole other team Mm -hmm. of people. Um, So I just, I mean, there was like a good 10 years there where like we were on the road a lot. We were teaching and working with funeral directors. I was consulting with businesses in, in and outside the United States, I started speaking at funeral conferences about, like, marketing and about, like, how to have perhaps a messaging that resonates better with the public. Um, I am very pro-funeral director because these are people that have this very specific training. They know the laws. This is one of the issues with the death doula movement right now is you have a lot of people that are entering this work who are not educated that it's a felony to, like if somebody complains about you and you're doing something that's a little bit like under the jurisdiction of a funeral director, it's a felony. And I don't want to see these people like, who are in this for good, not understanding because they, they, they took a training program that is not teaching them about the boundaries of where the work should be and, and not be. Just out of curiosity, can you give me an example of something that is under the jurisdiction of the funeral director that a doula, deaf doula might do? Um, well, it varies. So in the United States, funeral service is regulated at, I mean, it can be up to four different levels, city, county, state and federal. Mm -hmm. So your local funeral director is going to know what those specific rules and regulations are. Um, And the other thing about funeral service is it's not just like the funeral home. Like usually like these people have relationships with your local coroner or your medical examiner. And the other challenge with funeral service in the U.S. is that the baseline qualifications to be a funeral director can be very different. Like in the state of Colorado, technically – you don't need anything to open a funeral home. Um, in Kentucky, 
actually, I don't want to say this, but there's some states where you just need a high school diploma mm-hmm. to start working as a funeral director. There are other states like Ohio, you have to have a four-year bachelor's degree, I think, plus an apprenticeship. So there can be huge variations right. in like the training that you go under. But yeah, do um, research before you choose where to die, people. <laughs> I mean, it can make a difference. And like, you know, some states have requirements, like if you want to be buried like in Texas, but you die in Kentucky, so we need to move mm. your body across state lines. Um, some states will have requirements on what your bo- what kind of state your body needs mm-hmm. to be to come come in and all this kind of stuff. Um, but anyway, to your question about like, like where, what like what's an example? Yeah. Um, so there have been instances where um, some states are, have more sort of requirements around like what is a funeral home, mm-hmm. what activities happen in a building, that is a funeral home. And so if you are a good-hearted person that just wants to provide different options for your community and then you're in your home and then you bring – you have somebody bring dead mom mm. to your house and then you're going to help prepare the body maybe, for example, and maybe have a funeral there. Or I don't know. Um, the state or somebody may be like, wait a minute. So it you're you, – is it, are you a funeral home? Do you have like – because funeral homes have to meet – there's, like, all kinds of standards, cleanliness standards yeah. and, you know, your bodily fluids and stuff like that. Is and it fair to say that most of these boundaries have to do with uh, the fact that there's a dead body? Yeah, yeah. It's around the – Yeah, well, because when you, when you die, the laws around you change. Mm-hmm. When you are dead, you become um, – basically like quasi property. So property law is actually what is like utilized to sort of determine your stuff. Um, and like <laughs> possessions, nine tons of the law, yeah. keeping grandma. <laughs> I know that. Um, so anyway, it's, this is also why I love death care funeral service because it's this real, it's really interesting to me. We are mixing federal state city and county rules and regulations and laws that's informed by the local, you know, communities mm-hmm. a lot of the times. Plus, um, with business capitalism, right? Like in the United States, it's legal to open a funeral home and like make a living from that. There are some countries in the world where um, funeral stuff is provided by the government. It's like a government service and it's not something on the free market. You cannot mm-hmm. open a funeral business. Um, so that's also different here in the US. Um, but it was just really interesting. Like you have all these really unique, and then on top of that, you got like dead people and grief thrown in the mix. And it really can create some really, really complicated situations, um, challenges. It's really interesting stuff. I think there's this um, idea that aspects of – and this is not – I'm. it sounds like I'm saying this is what I think and I'm pinning it on someone else. I'm not. I'm just uh, – I have thank, thankfully not had to uh, plan a funeral yet mm-hmm. or any of that stuff. Yeah. Um, not gone shopping for – Yep. ways to deal to dispose of the body or anything like that um but you know you hear people say that like oh the they try to upsell you or the funeral business mm-hmm. can be predatory or all mm-hmm. like what do you think of all that yeah i mean just like any other business just like um i mean it, it, yes absolutely there are absolutely aspects of that within funeral service um part of what upsets me is this is my like hot take here so as any- hot as my architect take <laughs> <laughs> anytime that you work with death or grief um the public some part of the public tends to have this idea that well you should do this for free mm-hmm. or for very little money and 
handling dead people and managing grief and staying legally compliant and having a safe business and running a staff, like whatever, that's a lot of skill. And so as a result, what's happened over the years is the public has been like, um, like I have one of my former students, um, he's like a third generation funeral director and he just had gotten married and had kids and he was running the funeral home. And this, he was literally like never home. He couldn't be because he was trying to like, serve his community that he grew up and around mm-hmm. and um i don't know they were able to save up enough money to put like a little pool in their backyard annihilated by the community how dare this funeral director oh wow look at him he's made all this money off, off of our, of our grief yeah. this guy was in debt this guy was just trying like there was no abuse that was mm-hmm. happening but um this is like a unique pressure that happens to a lot of people that work with death and dying. The pressure to be poor, mm-hmm. the pressure to not be doing better than us kind of a thing. Right. And it's really wild to watch that. Because to me, if you're having people deal with grief and death, they should be well paid. They should have comfortable lives. Why should they have to deal with some of this really difficult, vicarious trauma right. at work all the time? And then you want them to go home and not be able to have, like, a, a decent minivan for the family or something. That's so interesting. But they're really, really scrutinized. Um, so anyway, but I'm talking a lot about, like, the independently mm-hmm. owned, the family-owned funeral homes. Um, there is a very large conglomerate in the United States um, that owns, I think now it's like 80% of all funeral homes. Um, and what's what's... What, it's like any other business. It's like any other industry. Mm-hmm. When you – like there's systems in place that can work really well. But when you have a big system, big mm-hmm. systems are typically what cause – someone's getting oppressed somewhere yeah. and someone's getting Exploited. you know, cannibalized by that. Um, so I think that when it comes to funeral service in the U.S., I think all of it is true. Mm-hmm. Like there are serious problems in areas that need to be improved, but also like – um, it's really valuable work. It's really important yeah. work, and um, most people wouldn't want to do it. So that's so interesting, you know. though. I never really thought about that automatic feeling of like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. I am grieving, and now, and it like adds insult to injury that I have to like pay for. Like when my um, when my dog died, and we got the the they did a clay paw. You know, I I yeah. opted for the clay paw, and then I got like the invoice for the clay paw thing, and I was just yeah. like, mm-hmm. "Really? That's yeah. so expensive." I hadn't really questioned that. I mean, I also didn't like you know journal about it for six days or something. But I mean, it was just like a passing mm-hmm. thought. But I really did have that feeling of like how predatory of them to take advantage of what, you know, I yeah. haven't even thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. But so I feel like that's also like, that is tickling your grief. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Because if you are not grieving, if you bought a customized ceramic thing, right. I would expect and we're not, you'd be yes. like, yeah, I need to pay for that. Right. But it's, totally. and that's what makes it really extra challenging to work with death, dying, grief and loss in a public facing mm-hmm. way is because grief doesn't necessarily, it affects the way that you like make decisions. Yeah. And, I mean, science shows us this. Um, so it's a really, it's a really tricky work. And that's why the burnout rate is so high. There's a lot of, um, alcoholism and addiction issues within funeral service. Um, you know, I think obviously like a result, I mean, these people are dealing with really awful, terrible things that happen. And then on top of that, live under the pressure of like, you don't want to have a new car around town, especially if it's a small town, because then people are going to be like, you got that off of all of our, you know, dead people or whatever. Mm. And it's, it's just, it's, 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 it's hard. So at the crematorium, uh, funeral 
house, all those things. Was there anything that you found scary, icky, upsetting? No. No. And at like, the time, were no. you like, I have a superpower. I am not, you know, I'm not like bumped by these things that most people can't, most people are afraid of. No, because I've, I've also found that, um, like, I mean, funeral homes are workplaces. Um, and they're like, I said funeral house. I'm like, that doesn't sound I mean, right. As it, came, as it came out of my mouth, though, meant. it felt wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're all like workplaces. And I think, and also I think most people's experience with a funeral home is either you're there crying yeah. and upset or it's what you see on TV. Mm-hmm. And what we see on TV is not really depicting funeral homes as like, this is just my basic workplace. Like, right. you know what I mean? Like, here's the stack of papers on my desk. I got to process. Right. Um, no, it's dramatized. But I've been in more funeral homes than I can count in like three countries or something like that. And everyone that I've ever been in is very, is like great. They're organized. They have systems. Like everything is in its place. I've seen a lot of dead people. And um, that you, you totally no. a okay with that. Yeah. It really, have you ever seen, de- uh, been around a dead person before? Y- my, there, my grandfather had an open casket. Okay. So, but, I, but were, were you ever with a dead person before they were like at their funeral, like when they were just like, no, I don't think dead so. at home I've, or dead in bed or no, I've seen dead weird, yeah. pets, but, mm-hmm. um, and I was uh, very upset by it, um, yeah. because they were my pets. <laughs> right. Um, but no, I've never, the only, the only dead body I've seen was my grandfather, like at his funeral. Yeah. I yeah. Think of yeah. No, I haven't. Yeah. So I will say that like the experience of being with someone that has, recently died um i think that there's something in your body like biologically that is hardwired into us to mm-hmm. just like you just know um like you know how to be yeah um and anybody that i've ever worked with or all these like funeral homes i've toured especially if i've like had to go through a space where there's like um uh, an embalming or something that has is just finished up or something um there's only ever been like the absolute most respect demonstrated. Mm-hmm. And like, I would, um, we'd often say hello, Mrs. Whatever their name is walking by because to me, they're still a person mm-hmm. and they can't, um, the dead are a vulnerable population because they don't get a say anymore. Yeah. And I think that there's, I hold that. I have so much respect for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, it's not scary to be around it. It's very natural. And especially the type of natural that you only see when you are with someone who's recently died. Mm -hmm. It's very beautiful. And, like, part of why I love my work is because I can only be fully present to it. Mm -hmm. It's really – like, I literally have never been around a dead person and been like, I wonder if I've gotten any comments on that TikTok. (laughs) You know what I mean? And, like, thinking of that kind of stuff is, like, Mm -hmm. not being in the here and now. And so I think that's why I've been able to maybe, like, last in my career because I get this medicine of just the opportunity to be present in my current life. And, like, even talking to you right now about this, like, I am fully here because we're talking about something that's important. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, it's not scary. And I I don't believe – like, I've never seen a ghost – I kind of wish I had so that I could like understand what people are talking about mm-hmm. to have that yeah. experience. But I don't, um, I've never like seen that stuff and, um, no one's ever like ghosted me except in real life while they're living. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I always think that like all of that stuff is scary, quote unquote, when it's 
uh, like depersonalized and when it's just conceptual, like the idea of dead bodies. But when it's your loved one, yeah. then it's like just your loved one. Yeah. It's not sc- – it's sad, but it's not scary right. anymore. Right, right, A lot of times the things that we think are scary actually are just internal. They have mm-hmm. nothing to do with what's happening out there. Like seeing – like the – honestly, we are the thing to be afraid of ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> that's where we should – you know, right. that's where a lot of the fear actually comes from. So um, – on one of the uh, the other podcasts I do, Childish, which yeah. is a parenting-ish podcast with mm-hmm. Greg Fitzsimmons, he was talking about trying to get to – because his, his mom is um, older mm-hmm. and has been having some health issues. And like trying to get to a place where instead of wringing his hands and feeling anguish over death, he's just going to look at it like it's something we all do. It's natural. And when she dies, instead of being so sad, it's just like, what a great life she was able to lead. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, you know, come up against this, this notion of, of this is how we're going to process death before this idea of like, what if we didn't have to feel sad about it? And mm-hmm. I always think like, that would be wonderful. I don't think it's, I don't know if it's possible, but like, where are you with all that? Like how much gr- is there is there a way to avoid grief? Um, no, um, and even like being more educated about it, it's like there's like two different buckets. Like you have, like you can learn more about death, dying, grief, and loss, and research shows that will actually like reduce your death anxiety, um, and it can help make the mechanics of things you might experience smoother. Maybe mm-hmm. not easier, but smoother. Right, because you're you know, not surprised that right. you're feeling it. Yeah, and then the other bucket is like the gr- grief. You cannot educate yourself out of that Mm -hmm. you cannot talk yourself out of that um like period and um that's a question i get asked a lot they're like oh my god and actually this happened like when my sister died i had multiple people be like oh i'm so sorry your sister died but like um you're probably gonna grieve like so easy because (laughs) you're what and i was like don't talk to me. <laughs> I right. was like, You're I am missing hurting. It entirely. Um, yeah. yeah. So, but yeah. So, uh, truly, your grief is. It's really important to have a good relationship with your grief. Um, just because you have like you're sad or you even feel hopeless or despair, um, it's imp- you can also experience joy at the same time, um, and it's okay. It's okay to have really happiness, good things happening mm-hmm. at the same time that there's bad or whatever you want to call it um it's just really important to stay connected to your grief so that way you can keep it moving so that it doesn't become like stagnant Mm -hmm. and start to like rot and fester you want to give it light and sunlight and so the in in your experience or in your knowledge like there is no way to avoid grief like for anyone out there who's like i'm going to not do all that like you're Mm -hmm. fooling yourself Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah definitely definitely um Grief. Um, so the most, one of the most common pieces of incorrect information that is still taught is that grief is an emotion. It is not. Grief itself is you cannot feel grief. You mm-hmm. can feel sad, mm-hmm. which might be part of your grief response. You can feel happy. You can feel all these things. But grief is not an emotion. And there's actually six categories of like symptoms or signs um, that a person will have when the grief process starts. Mm-hmm. Um, social. Uh, cognitive, behavioral, um, emotional, spiritual, and physical. Some people will favor a category. This is why. Have you ever known someone that didn't cry yeah. when someone died? Okay. 
because they're just not having a, a lot of mm-hmm. stuff in the emotional category. And, and in my mind, I always justify it as like, oh, they're going to do that when they get home or something. Yeah. So I'm just like, I mean, some, some people, so, like, I know some people are like, yeah. I haven't cried in three years. Yeah. <laughs> but it doesn't mean that they're not grieving. It right. just means that maybe they're favoring like spiritual right. symptoms and they're like really having like an existential crisis and questioning mm-hmm. God or like, why are we here? Um, I have a lot of physical symptoms when my grief is active. So for me, like I will bloat like and just hold it for days and days and not even know why dry lips has been a documented like sign yeah. um i so become more beautiful it's weird <laughs> oh yeah it's strange okay well that's good yeah, yeah embrace it <laughs> I, guess, I guess that's physical just yeah <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah so with grief um i think it's important to know like everyone does it. and that's why like usually in a single family people do not grieve identically like in the same way. And this is a source of family conflict a lot of times because one sister will be like, you're not even crying. Mm. You know, this is, you're so disrespectful. Um, but it makes sense that within a family unit, you have somebody who's maybe more emotional and the other family grows up and develops in response to that. So perhaps they have learned to sort of mitigate the emotional side. And then as a result, they favor other stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's normal. Um, Let's talk about shadow loss. Yeah. This is a a term that you coined. It's my work, yeah. Explain what that is. Yeah. So um, shadow loss uh, is a loss in life, not of life. And a shadow loss is only something that we can claim for ourselves. It is not a diagnostic term. It was not developed in a clinical lab for the purpose of diagnosing someone and building a treatment plan. It is like a word that... a People can use to describe mm-hmm. their lived experience, and the idea with this, it, it saves emotional labor. So it would work like this. So if I told you, Allison, um, one of my friends ghosted me, um, and honestly, it's a shadow loss. Me saying that just saved me from having to be like, no, we've been friends for four years. Yeah, I haven't explained We it. did this. We felt this together. I went through this with her. I don't have to relive any of that. I just saved all myself that mm-hmm. work by just being able to be like, it was a shadow loss for me. Um, with shadow losses, another common shadow loss is the, a medical diagnosis. So, for example, you could have two people that are diagnosed with infertility. Mm-hmm. One person might experience that as a shadow loss, but the other one might not. You know, that might it might not right. might be a bummer, but it may not be something that they actively, like, mm-hmm. grieve. Um, divorces retirement many people retire and they end up grieving because they're like loss of identity Mm -hmm. but there's a societal pressure to be like aren't you so happy you're not working anymore and they're like no but society doesn't want to hear that um medical diagnoses getting ghosted um a business failing filing for bankruptcy Mm -hmm. i mean losing a dream the, the pandemic. Yeah. Um, I mean, getting fired unexpectedly. I mean, anything can be a shadow loss. Mm-hmm. And um, in the English language, we actually don't have a super robust selection of words mm-hmm. to describe our lived experiences. And one of the problems in just Cole's opinion is that we use a lot of language developed within and for a clinical environment in um, day-to-day life. But, I was, but I was like, we don't have the just training. Just talking about people constantly using the term narcissism when that is not what they mean. Right. Um, and so we're borrowing that. And yeah. so the problem is that then the average person lacks the nuance mm-hmm. that would have come around being educated on that term, what it was developed for and around, and how it is to be used. Um, and so we pull a lot of language from the clinical environment, um, and that 
um, can for some people result in feelings of shame. So for example, being told, uh, I have a, a, a story that I have permission to share. Um, there was a gentleman who's young, youngish. He'd been married only a few years. Um, his wife died and he, um, was in like grief counseling and his therapist told him that, Oh, you're, you know, cause he was really upset. He was Jewish. He was really upset because now he's going to have to like, like his wife is dead. That's one thing. But now he has to show up again as a single Jew and have to be like at all these holidays and just like all of this stuff that he's now single to. Mm -hmm. He had just like finally like found his person and all this. And his um, therapist told him that, well, that's secondary grief. Mm. Um, But he, that really upset him. Yeah. Because he's like, there's nothing secondary about this. She's dead. I've accepted that. I am living in this reality now. And this is primary for me. But there's nothing wrong with the term secondary grief within a clinical context because that's how the therapist is going to create a diagnosis and treatment plan. But to a person, um, we only know what the words mean. Mm -hmm. And so the word secondary uh, can can be experienced as minimizing. And I want to be clear, like I'm not knocking my colleagues' work because right. it's really important and I'm just really interested in this problem we have mm-hmm. where we have a lack of language to help us accurately describe is, our lived experiences. Is there a language that is better at this? Um, not necessarily better, but I mean, you know, your the language you use is a reflection of the culture that formed mm-hmm. it. Um, like Spanish, for example, um, handles the concepts of grief differently than we do in English. Like there's, it's not a a direct translation like dolor in Spanish is like pain, Mm -hmm. but it can also be like grief Mm -hmm. and it's just not an apples to apples translation. I've, I've, I've actually found that studying death words in other languages, just looking them up and, or talking to someone who speaks Mm -hmm. the language can actually give you really good insight about Mm. how, your primary language like handles it Mm -hmm. like in the u.s i mean we have death and grief and loss and um you know all of these sorts of words but other languages will sometimes have more specificity Mm -hmm. and they'll kind of divide those concepts up in different ways does german have a lot of words oh my i love the germans because they just like create words all the time (laughs) like i read an article that during the pandemic there's been like 60 new words that have been accepted into the german language and Mm -hmm. it's all like because they the language works you can mash words together yeah um so germans tend to be very like accurate Mm -hmm. um about what they're describing spanish um to me is like very um it's artful i think spanish is like uh, it's speaking art mm-hmm. um but i'm thinking that as someone whose primary language is, is english right um having acquired spanish later so yeah um i think we should do uh, i'm trying to figure out what we should do I think we should take questions from listeners. Uh, oh, I'm great. on they Patreon, patreon.com slash Allison Rosen. Also, fun stuff. Uh, there's bonus episodes of The Friend Zone. That's my Patreon bonus podcast. There's a level where you can text me and I'll text you back. Uh, there, You can see videos of the Thursday show and also uh, outtakes. Alter- alternate photos that weren't used. Um hot gossip all sorts of stuff subscribe for a year get two months free and also you can get your question ahead of the line and we have a song when we ask they send them in they're wondering how you have been so thanks so much for answering these questions from our fans 
Okay. Alyssa Van Dyke says, question, my father was a public figure regionally, so his death was very much a public affair. What advice would you give to a family whose loved one was a public figure? It felt really different than other funerals I've been to, number-wise, but also feeling the need to entertain people at the viewing yeah. who didn't really know my dad privately, but felt like they owned a part of him. Or maybe it's the same, but it's my dad, so I obviously felt different. Yeah. That is a beautiful question, and it's a it touches on a type of like a loss experience mm-hmm. that not everybody has. You only have it if you <laughs> like have lived it and know what it feels like. So typically, when somebody dies, um, support is received like inward. If you are immediate to the loss, then everyone supports you. And then if you're like friends with the person, then you are supporting them. And then you know the sort of farther out in the rungs you go mm-hmm. from the dead person. <clears throat> um, you, you maybe are not receiving support on the very, like the very outer rungs. Right. When someone dies that people have a relationship with, even though they never met that person mm. before, like a celebrity or an author or a musical artist, um, any of those sort of people, um, what can happen is, is that person needs to express their relationship. And so sometimes what can happen is then you end up having the grievers, the people affected by the the immediacy of that loss, having to then end up supporting like randoms who you've never met before and you don't even know their name. And it's kind of a little bit like an imbalance of power. Like you have someone like, okay, like when you have a podcast and you have people, they know so much about you, but you don't know them. You don't mm-hmm. know their name. You don't know where they live. You don't know where they work, but they could, unless they're on Patreon. Unless they're, Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Yes. And so when there's a death in those communities, it, the only option somebody mm-hmm. has is to express their, like how important that person was to them. Because also it's kind of interesting. So, it's really hard to support somebody in grief mm-hmm. when you don't know them or have a relationship with them. And so when someone like famous dies and then their family is left, the grievers who come who didn't have a relationship with the deceased, those immediate family members are like a conduit mm-hmm. to the last chance to give the message, mm-hmm. the last chance to have a, it be a two-way street relationship. Right. Um, like, a, like there's a transference. Yeah. It's like, you know, people want to come and just – that's the only chance they will have to say their piece about mm-hmm. how important this person was. Also, this happens with people, prominent people in religious communities that mm-hmm. die, like big famous rabbis yeah. or priests or whatever. Um, so what do you do about it? Um, really, the only thing you can do is be aware. This is like something that I would communicate, like if you're working with a funeral home, be like, hey – that is a notable person. The funeral home will know if it's in the community. Um, and just to make sure that there's some like line management um, mm-hmm. or just being able to talk through what the family wants to experience or not experience. Some people will be very comforted hearing how much somebody's work or life affected others. Mm-hmm. But not all people will. Um, the problem is that this is basically something that is not talked about in advance because it's not part of any like – normal conversation that people have so what happens is what exactly happened to your um supporter there like it happened and they like lived through it um so hopefully just talking about this will help somebody somewhere but um really about the best thing you can do is be aware Mm -hmm. and structure funeral services around that um i 
also recommend creating a place online and like putting it in the obituary. Mm. Um, please leave your memories um, here on this web page or whatever it might be. And then kind of like helping to funnel some of that. Yeah, that's a good idea. Lisa Murphy Tate says, grief is something we are never taught by our families until we lose someone. Does Cole think this needs to change? If so, how do we change this? Many children and teens encounter loss and grief without proper communication skills or techniques, uh, which can turn into a variety of less than desirable behaviors, mental illness, Mm -hmm. dysfunction, etc. Side note, I used to work for a grief center in southwestern Illinois. Oh, okay, wonderful. Um, I have a book coming out about this for kids. Oh, um, yes. It comes out September 3rd, 2024. Oh, um, my gosh. But it's because it's now a full-color oh, illustrated awesome. book. Um, it's called A Guide to Your Grief. Now, aside from that, I I really think that death and dying education should be in grade schools, to be honest, because it's normal um, and everything around you dies, not just mm. people, pets, um, chairs wear out computers we say what do we say computers die Mm -hmm. like it's it's everywhere and it's also all over tv all over the news all in music um so it's not like the kids are not being exposed to this um and i believe it's time to have some sort of structured information provided Mm -hmm. um do you think it's not because of the difference in belief of the afterlife and like this sort of like people feeling that it's a religious thing um, there's a number of factors that I believe are like why this is not a standard mm-hmm. part of American education. Um, and part of it is like what is incentivized in our education, mm-hmm. um, what schools receive incentives for offering. Working for the man. So, yeah, like basically yeah. You know, becoming good workers. Um, so the pandemic has created more uh, children than in recent history who have lost like yeah. without a parent. Um, and I cannot tell you the number of inquiries that like I have gotten for like this book, for example, because they're desperate for material yeah. that is written for kids to them. It's not written like above them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so many parents, this is one of the most common questions I get is from parents that are like my daughter, like the, what do I say? Like, what do I say? Um, and I know it's it's really hard because as parents, okay, what have you been told about what, how to talk about death and dying with your kids? Um, so the only pla- the only places that I've received any instruction have been. So I mean, the answer is nothing, but uh, I have talked about it with my therapist. Yeah, uh, and then also my kids go to a really good preschool, and yeah. they have. Um, chickens and rabbits and things like that and so periodically we'll get an email that's like sad news about Susie our yeah. beloved chickens you Good. know Susie yeah. died um just wanted to you know give you a heads up we told the children we use really straightforward language like um her body stopped working yes. she wasn't in pain or Excellent. something like that like that's what, so yes my but without that preschool my kids would not have and yeah. that has all kind of instructed me in how to talk about yeah. it. But yes, um, that's wonderful. That's and that's totally accurate. Like yeah. just be like direct about it. And usually the kids learn from adults to be freaked out by it. Mm-hmm. So the problem is if if someone like a kid asks you about it and you're like, okay, right? Like whispering is telling someone, oh my god, this is serious. More yes. serious than I realized. So it's also important to be aware of your body language. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, we learned how to deal with it from the environment we grew up in. Um, And the people we grew up around, they learned it from the environment they grew up in. Now, in my opinion, death is actually not the taboo in the United States. Um, We are surrounded by death all the time. 
it's grief. Grief is actually where all the issues come up. That's where people have problems. That's where it gets messy. Death is pretty simple. It's like, I mean, it's a normal, it's the end point in the life cycle. It's not that complicated. Grief is where all the complication is. And we really don't have grief literacy, which is what we especially need. Like, Mm. for example, I wish kids were taught grief is not just emotions. It's Mm. not just feelings. Like there's physical stuff. So that that way we want to teach kids how to modulate and regulate their own grief responses so that they can learn like, oh, I'm acting out here. I hit Billy or something like that. And maybe it's because I'm sad my grandpa died. But we only really teach that sadness is grief. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of the messaging that kids hear. And it's not enough. So. Right. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I uh, graduated college, I had been, I've talked about this before, not in that much detail, but like I was very close with one of my professors. I had mm-hmm. a huge crush on him. Mm-hmm. Um and he died that he committed suicide that summer and that was like so how old was i 22 that was i i would say my mom's parents both died when i was six so i had been around you know that was like the first deaths and then you know loss of pets but then when my professor died that was like that like floored me for like two years i mean i was it was just such a huge because this was someone that i mean it's, it's a long story but he was so in a in a way where I look back and it's like I was I I had a I would have seen that relationship differently now you yes. know but I didn't have yeah. uh, the life you know under my belt to not think like I'm in love with him yes. and when I graduate we can be together mm-hmm. I mean like my whole I had pinned my whole future on this guy mm-hmm. which it just to, uh, I should ex- nothing physical ever happened between yeah. us um, I think that our email relationship and our we talked on the phone and all of that was like probably inappropriate except not explicitly Mm -hmm. um or i imagined the whole thing i don't know you know Mm -hmm. sometimes i think like did i imagine the whole relationship but i saved all the emails and like i haven't done it in a number of years but periodically i'll go back i would go back and read them and i'd be like i didn't imagine this like there was something there um but anyway i when i think about how heavily I grieved and how much I like let it show I feel embarrassed mm-hmm. um it, I, I say that in response to what you were saying about like the taboo is about grief grief yeah because I was just this like sad just like, dramatic like, like yeah and yeah. I and I like I played in a band at the time, and mm-hmm. I remember like introducing a song, being like, "This is about my friend. He died." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, I feel, but I feel like so embarrassed, and just like going to the campus and like getting lunch with other professors to try to make sense of it, and just, I mean, yeah. I don't know. I just feel like, but you're also like, also get now, it together, lady. You're looking back at it from the eyes of someone who has had a lot more life experience, yes. and so you know, at the time, all of your other professors they were looking at you like, "Oh, she's like 22. probably so yeah. like, right," which is exactly how you would treat a 22 year old right. that was. Great. Right. over their professor that had died um but yeah the the grief is the is the hard part is the yeah. messy part is the part right, where messy you, exactly. it, it makes you feel vulnerable mm-hmm. and then like you and like, like out of control of things and you don't know where to put it and there's no like we don't have 
like we have a container for when there's a dead body, mm-hmm. a funeral. Okay, it's a nice container. It's an appropriate place to be wrecked. You can be, you can have the whole day to be wrecked and <laughs> right. cry in public and everything. We don't really have that for shadow losses. Um, and while your professor died, and that's like what I would call a big mm. death, there was a shadow loss there because you had a All relationship these, yeah. that was hidden that died. Yes. And nobody saw it. And also it wasn't socially acceptable to like have a vigil for mm. the death of your romantic yes. life like right. in your mind. Totally. I felt very like this is the weirdest feeling because had we actually been together, then everyone would understand what I'm going through. But instead, because this was like this sort of secrety thing. Yeah. Have you heard of um, d- disenfranchised grief? No, that I is so. a term by um, Dr. Kenneth Doka. Disenfranchised grief is anytime grief is not seen or recognized by society. Mm. Shadow losses yes. may or may not be disenfranchised, but like in your case, it was disenfranchised because you, you, pro- you knew not to be like telling everyone about your you were in love, you know, right. With him, right? Like you, yeah. so it was like not seen or recognized by your peer group, by society. So as a result, your grief was kind of left hanging. Mm-hmm. Yes. And like just unresolved. Yeah. And the nature of suicide is that it's mm-hmm. like you don't get closure on that one. Yeah. There's you know. always going to be questions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of questions, okay. Becky Milner, did she grow up in Northern Kentucky? No, you grew up in Cincinnati. Yeah, but it's like, the same it's the, uh, like geographically very very similar but northern kentucky is my heart home okay <laughs> yeah. uh did she enjoy teaching embalming mortuary science i did not teach embalming um i taught thanatology at um like two, two three mortuary colleges mm-hmm. um and i loved it um i loved it yeah <laughs> um drew spicer how does she feel about the pop science side of senescence or the anti-aging movement that's gained traction over the last several years as it pertains to our view of death. Mm. And with the easy assumption that we'll never be rid of death, do you think those movements have a net positive due to forced exposure or negative due to denial of this, like essay question effect on our collective acceptance of it or on the perception of death work? Great. A plus question. I know really good. Excellent. Um, have the best patrons. We have there's like this life extension kind of movement where people are trying to figure out how to get humans to live longer, healthier. Mm-hmm. I think that's great. I think it would be great if we could extend our the average lifespan. Um, I worry about are we extending it for everyone? Are we making sure we're not just extending it for white people? Mm-hmm. Um, because that is kind of what where a lot of the money is coming from yeah. and who it is supporting. Um, I do not support the. The idea of like trying to ever get to a point where we don't die. And I Mm -hmm. actually don't think it is good to live a really, really long time because that is what allows for very severe power differentials Mm -hmm. to occur. Because what happens like, you know, imagine that you start saving for retirement at the age of 30. You finally get to a million dollars at the age of 60 and you're going to retire. Well, imagine if you had 30 more years on that money you set aside you're going to retire with many more millions of dollars. So if people don't die, that's going to allow the acquisition of more resources Mm -hmm. and the people who will be able to do that first will already typically be in a position of power. Yeah. Um, So I, for society, and there's like a whole like theoretical thing about this where like sociologists will model what society would look like if we didn't die and it would be bad. It would be... um, Eventually, you'd end up with just a really small number of people in power, and there would 
death is the thing that makes life good. Death is why we get out of bed. Death is why we have kids. Death is why we decide to put ourselves through writing a book. If you are never going to die, well, I can start my book next year. Mm -hmm. I can do it in 10 years. I'm never going to die. So death is this really magical thing, this force that we're all born with that – is terrible because it ends a life, but it is also simultaneously the thing that gives us the magic juice that makes us do stuff and try to make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. If we didn't die, we wouldn't have that. Um, So I don't know if that's a good answer, but that's my feelings. I'm just realizing that I nap like I'm going to live forever. (laughs) Oh, but a good nap is so good. I know. I just think I'd probably take too much. That's like a reason to reincarnate because you just want to have a good nap again. I'm coming back for my – I want to be buried in my robe. Tony, right? Tell Daniel. Burial robe. (laughs) Um, Okay. Josoko says – oh, there's five questions. Okay. Oh, Okay. Seeing her beloved Ruby's exit was heartbreaking yet so beautiful. How does she feel about moving far away from her gravesite? That's amazing. My puppy dog, Ruby. Um, Ruby's my dead dog. Um, Oh, like, okay, so Ruby was buried um, at a a cemetery um, in northern Kentucky. And, um, God, I miss that dog. So I went back home for the first time after moving here at the beginning of December. And I went down with my mom and dad while they took me to the airport to fly back here. And we all got out of the car, and I saw Ruby, and I cried again. Um, I think Ruby's really happy. So um, Rick, uh, who is the superintendent at that cemetery, Rick um, – I love Rick. I miss him so much. I miss the cemetery there. He actually hand-selected her burial spot. Oh. And he chose a spot so that she could see the sunrise and the sunset, and he oriented her so that she could see that, like, um, in the springtime water collects nearby and all the birds come. So that way she would have birds to, like, look at. And I cannot tell you how much comfort that gives me. And I'm like, I can't take her from that. Like, so anyway, I feel so good where she is. She sees every sunrise and sunset. She's, like, runs the cemetery. Because I know she's the boss of all the ghosts there. (laughs) That's what I believe is to be true. Um, So that's that's a great question. And for people who, like... I don't know. That was something I worried about. I'm like, okay, I'm burying my dog here permanently moving across the country. Mm -hmm. Am I going to regret it? No, I don't because I really like where she's buried and she like is with people she knows. So that's so sweet. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm hoping to take her Thanabotany class (gasps) this year. What is her favorite Thanabotanical? And you should explain what that is. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you already did. Specimen native to Southern California. Oh, okay. So Thanabotany is a field that I pioneered. It was developed out of, um, I had a research fellowship. Thanabotany is where plants, people, and death, dying, grief, and bereavement intersect. So if you're like a plant person, but you're also really interested in like death and dying, Thanabotany is for you. And I now have people in 26 countries that have learned with me on that. Um, And the field is growing. So um, there are all different types of plants that have a thanabotanical usage um, across time, cultures, countries, history, all of that. Um, here in Southern California, um, I just got accepted to the California Master Gardeners Program. Ooh. And it starts tomorrow. And I'm really excited about that because I'm going to be able to get a really good education in California natives, um, mm. native plants and all that kind of stuff. And being able to have access to reliable information about how those plants were used traditionally. Here, I will say in Southern California, the California poppy, the orange poppy, is very important, I'd say, culturally to this area. Everyone knows the California poppies, right? Um, people look forward to when they bloom in oh, the right. spring. Yeah, it's the like super a, bloom. Yeah, it's important. Um, and it's a symbol that people recognize. I would argue that that is actually a modern thanabotanical plant in the sense that 
it has any plant that becomes part of a community or culture's identity becomes a representation of that person in some way, or it can. Um, I have several documented, um, like stuff found in obituaries recently of people who died and they requested California poppies, like imagery or if, um, like pressings of them because they weren't in season. But that is named as like the plant that they connect with and represents their home to them. So that is a recent example. <laughs> um, okay. Oh, four. What uh, – I skipped over three because that was about cicadas in your vagina. Mm-hmm. Um, four, what seasonal color does she guess Allison is? Oh, okay. So one of some of the best money I ever spent was on hiring someone to like hold different colors up to me and figure out what like makes me look the best. Oh, so and I what that means that. is what you want to do is find colors that help reduce dark spots or wrinkles. If you're into that, I, I prefer to have less disruptions in my face. Yeah. That's just what my aesthetic, it's what I like to look at. So um, they did like 200 colors or something like that. Who, is it like a color theory person? Or um, like a- I hired, so I did a lot of research and I hired Carol Braley, um, who's based in Canada. She can do this virtually um, and she's done excellent work and is, I think, very reasonable. Literally the money I spent on doing this was like less than two sweaters I bought <laughs> and never wore. Okay. And anyway, when I had it done, it like helped me realize, I'm like, wow, that's why I keep buying that color and never wear wearing it because it doesn't look good on me but Mm. i'm a true autumn so i look good in like like autumnal colors yeah Yeah. i'm curious what you are my husband is a true winter because i had we had his done too um but it really is like really nice it's helpful like i'm a winter yeah because typically you have a lot of contrast in your features Mm -hmm. um my husband does he's like has italian heritage he's got really dark hair but he's like more i don't know so I don't know. I could see you being a winter. Like if you look good in like true white or true, that's the only palette that can wear true black and true white and have it look good. Well, God, I hope I am. Cause I wear a lot, a lot of, of black. black. I know. Yeah. This is why a lot of people don't do it. Cause they don't want to find out that, that black all... is not a good color. On yeah. Them. And it's true for me. Um, so what color were the sweaters that you never wore? They were what, like, what color do you keep? They buying? were like pastel colors. Mm. I like to look at them, but yes. when they're on me, I'm just like, I look and what it does is it makes me look more dull. So anyway, I was able to use this knowledge to my monetary advantage. Um, I had like a, a deposition for a, um, like a, I was in a car accident and I had a background that was pure white, which brings out my scar that I got in the accident and it brings out wrinkles and it brings out dark spots. Whereas if I have like a background that is one of these colors, mm-hmm. it minimizes yeah. like you won't even notice my scar on my forehead. Um, so I did that during the deposition and it was helpful because – the attorneys and stuff could right. clearly see that, that my face was jacked up, but I was using the color theory to like enhance that. And that that's case. so smart. So yes, and my attorney was like asked for all this information because he's going to have his clients do it so that they can like use it. And I think that's it's so, so sm- like yeah, it's really smart. Yeah, so that is really smart. Okay. And then, uh, oh, when's your book coming out? We know September, September. 3rd, yeah. 2024. I but you have another book, right? Um, I'm working on some other stuff, but nothing's announced. Okay. So. Uh, Katie Kissler says, and this is the last one, Cole is a delight. Thank you for your documentary of Ruby's exit. It helped me with some anticipo- oh, anticipatory wow. grief I was having recently. The daisy chains. Will you be making more of these? What other fun, crafty things are you up to these days? Oh, I love. Okay, that's really nice. You play like no more we dead dog. That's the <laughs> coolest thing. Um, so daisy chains. Um, I started making daisy chains, um, which is just like this little beaded necklace style with like little flowers. Um, when Ruby was dying, and then now it's become like a little philanthropic project. 
project of mine. So two times a year in June, Ruby's birthday, and usually like November, I will do a daisy chain drop. Mm -hmm. So periodically, like I will make daisy chains like on the weekends or whatever, and then I will sell those and then I donate proceeds or a portion of proceeds depending to different causes. Um, so people buy these daisy chains and it comes in like this. I had I had custom boxes made and I had like a little booklet. Um, but I am a hardcore crafter. I have a big piece of furniture that's refrigerator sized that you open it up and I have more than 40 different crafts that's so cool. in it. So I'm always crafting. It really helps. I think I, I need to do that in mm. order to do my job because I'm exposed to so much like upsetting stuff all the time so i need to like bead or like draw or i don't know i'm making corsages tomorrow and i'm making the little corsage holder so that's like my upcoming craft so do you ever find yourself crying with people um sometimes um and i think sometimes that's really helpful and appropriate um sometimes you have to be really careful though because you don't want to make it about you mm-hmm. you know like there's a difference between like oh you reminded me of my grief so i'm crying for myself versus like you're crying and i am feel connected to you and i'm meeting you where you are that can feel very different so right yeah right. it takes i think experience to know when <laughs> when yeah <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. um oh ali told me i should ask you about pickleball oh my god i'm obsessed with pickleball listen it is so fun it is so good is this is it played on a tennis court with little rackets? Is that pickleball? So, what is pickleball? A lot of times you'll see people playing on a tennis court, but the tennis court is bigger than a pickleball court. Um, a pickleball court is smaller. The net isn't as high, and okay. you use a smaller paddle. Um, pickleball, I mean, the people like say it's like 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 it's like retiree sport. I mean, it is. There's a lot of people that are, but there's also a lot of young people that do it. Um, I, my husband and I, we play a lot of Sundays with some of our really good friends, and. It's so great because I will get like a workout level workout according to my Apple Watch, but I will not be wrecked and I will be able to go out and brunch afterwards. Um, And it's something where you can like be actually playing. I'm not good at sports with balls Mm -hmm. or like intense things, plays. I don't do that. You if you are not an athletic person, you can handle pickleball it is so much fun i have actually decided to make it the official sport of the school of american thanatology (laughs) just so i can figure out how to get custom paddles made and like to justify it as a business expense and then i want to actually like sponsor some of my students in different parts of the world to like have a little pickleball team because i just believe in it um i also love it because you can do intergenerational which I think intergenerational mm-hmm. relationships are really important. So it's awesome because you can be a 19-year-old playing with a 68-year-old and the 68-year-old will whip you. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm a big pickleball fan. Um, my husband and I started the Northeast Los Angeles Pickleball um, Association. It's like a little pickleball club. Um, that's how much we're into it. So That is awesome. <laughs> um, okay, boy, we are – I could talk to you forever, and I have talked to you forever. Let's quickly do either just me or everyone, or hey, go fuck yourself. Which one do you, would you rather do? Um, let's do it's just me or everyone. Okay. So I was like thinking about that. Sometimes I ponder on something I have thought or done. Is it just me or everyone? All right. Is it just me, or does everyone have like a shared? bizarre language that you have developed with your partner 
over a period of years where you have like words that make literally no sense, but you both use them all the time and you don't even notice it. Mm-hmm. And it's just part of like your shared language. Do you have that with? Yes, but I, but more, more so I have it with my sister. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Shared and it's been going on since we person. were like teenagers. Okay. Yes. Yes. Um, but, but yes, with Daniel, I do, but I think, feel like it's more of like a full, language with my sister yes, <laughs> you know yeah okay yeah. do you have any like words that you guys use that mean something that's completely in- inaccurate to what the word actually means <laughs> say it say it say it okay we call oh i've never talked about this right, my sister, yes, yes okay we call breasts goats okay because i had a dream that i was wearing uh, Mickey Mouse nightgown, which is what I used to wear at the time, and I was hanging out with this band yes. that I were they were friends of mine, and I was so into them. And one of them turned to the other one and said, "Look at Alice, <laughs> the dream. Goats. Look at Allison's breasts; they look like two goats." <laughs> oh my god! And it's stuck. And that's so my sister and I we call them the goats. Yeah, and then for some reason we call oh, funny. butts are. The butt is the whale, <laughs> but we don't oh. use that one nearly as often. Goats is goats like is, we never don't like it's say replaced. That. Yes, the word it's replaced. Yes, exactly. Language. Yes, I mean, oh, we have so we have so. Much. I'm trying to think of other ones. We have so many. Um, I love that. I love that. This is like my new favorite question to ask people. Yeah, like, really what good. is the word that you use that makes literally no sense, but it is like understood and accepted? Yeah. You smell is I love you. Aww. So like we'll just text <laughs> each other. You smell. Yeah. <laughs> I love it, which is, it's insane. I mean, and like, I, like if you're really trying to say it, it's you stink. Yeah. Um, wait, oh. what are ones that you and your husband have? Well, I made a list because I was like, get into yeah. it. So um, we have this really weird way of saying we're going to take a shower. <laughs> so, okay. Um, during the Trump era, do we remember Rince Priebus? Was yes. Like, okay, okay. So... Um, <laughs> Do you say you're going to take a rinse previous? Yeah. So at some point, because his name is Rinse, I was like, I'm going to take a rinse previous. Okay. And so now it's also evolved because I looked up um, like what the word rinse means. And then I was like, what is the word like the counterpart for like when you're taking a shower that is more liberal or like your water is being used more liberally? Okay. And the word is sluice. Oh, that's word. a fun word. So we'll because. A rinse previous is going to be more conservative. Okay. So that means for us that we're taking like a short a quick one, yeah. shower. So we'll be like, I'm going to take a rinse previous or rinse preb. We kind of short yeah, it now. Sure. And then I, we let each other know if we're taking like a longer shower, we'll just be like, well, it's a sluice because the definition of sluice yeah. is it's liberal water. I love all of this. So this is like what, and I realize like that when you die, your secret language dies with you. Yeah, that's sad. It's not preserved. It's yeah. like these things that you have together. Well, so. that, so when my professor died, I was like, what do I do with all of this, these, these memories and these thoughts and these inside jokes and all of this? Like, it's just, yeah. Because ah. between the two of you, you're the only living person that holds them. Yeah. Yeah, it's intense. We, my husband and I have a lot, I'm realizing, like a lot of language around our dog. Yep. You must have that too, yes. right? Oh, absolutely. Like for some, I don't know why. I mean, like, I feel like everyone has a thousand nicknames for their animal. Yes. At some point we started calling her the noon. Oh. But why? See, this is what's funny. When you lose the whole, like, why it happened, yes. then you're just left with this word and neither of you can remember right. where it came from. And it's 
is wild. It makes yeah. no sense, like, that you use this as your so communication. Like, when she is being, like, spazzy or barking or just, like, just being crazy, she's the noon. And she's nooning out. She's nooning out. She's being a real noon. But why? I don't yeah. know. You'll have, you'll have to ask and yeah. follow up with people. Yeah. Make it a patron bonus for, like, why. She's also... <laughs> Bergens, which comes from Wendelberg. Oh. <laughs> of course. Her name's Wendy. I should have said that. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. I love that. We I mean we have so many. All these words. See, now yeah. you're gonna be thinking about it. I totally will. I love I, I love all this. I love the stories behind yeah. it. <laughs> Do you and Flo have language? <sighs> Not really. Maybe some little things here and there. Nothing's really coming to mind. Maybe we have like dumb names that we'll like call you know, uh, <laughs> for some reason we all have like aliases. Like we've started calling Bentley the dog. We, he's Robert. Oh yeah, I love logical that. makes That's total fine. sense. And I call her Susan all the time. <laughs> what does she call you, Paul? Well, that, that, that rarely happens, but for some, I don't even. Yeah, it's one of those dumb things Funny. that like has. Yeah, I don't even know. It just just nonsense that started. And we're, I love we're all it. The yeah. blender skills. That's Victor our last me- name. The blender skills. Yeah. Paul, Susan, and Robert. That's funny. Uh, Victor calls me donkey and has as long as I've known him. And then he'll shorten it to donk. Like, what are you doing, donk? So, and that just, it does not phase me yeah. whatsoever. It's my name. So, you know. Yeah. That's so, I love it. This is such a good question. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I worked on it. It's really, I really good. I wanted to show up. I really, oh my God. Food, bread, and a good like, butter, and a perfect just me or everyone. I love it. Um, Thank you so much. Tell everyone uh, where they can find you. Plug all your things, please. Um, you can find me at colinperry.com. Um, and I have a weekly column like about grief, but like in the vein of how you've heard me talk about it. So it's not going to be like, you're not going to feel bad mm-hmm. after reading it. Um, and you can get that at grieformadness.com or on my website. It comes out on Thursdays. And then you can visit the school at americanthanatology.com. Um, I want to try to put some stuff on YouTube. So you can like subscribe to me on youtube that would be cool and is it colin perry yeah just my name okay yeah i'm the only colin perry like there's no other one so, so just google so me and everything will show up <laughs> tony what about you twitter and instagram at tony thaxton and bizarre albums every tuesday and uh if you'd like what you're hearing or even if you don't please make sure you're subscribed leave us a nice comment on apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening click five stars uh you can watch this on youtube youtube.com slash allison rosen and while you're there subscribe and please like and comment on all the videos every i mean i've been on there for a long time so every single one um no but just make sure make sure you're subscribed follow me on social media at allison rosen on twitter and instagram and i already mentioned my main patreon but new patreon alert I feel like we need some kind of sound to indicate an alert. Mm. <laughs> oh my goodness, cicadas! Is that what they sound like? Of course. <laughs> um, so Upworthy Weekly is sadly no more. However, Todd and I are not hanging up our podcast caps. I don't know what we we're still putting out our podcast. Sh- and Todd and I are continuing. Uh, so we're on Patreon. There's just one level, two dollars a month think my throat made a lot of sounds because it was excited and you can get you can go you can support that if you want patreon.com slash allison and todd allison with one l todd with one d take it up with our parents cole it was so nice finally meeting you it was so wonderful talking i'm very excited to try the bread and butter which i'm going to do in one second um listeners thank you for listening i love you you matter goodbye (laughs)